Following the tragic murder of Masa Amini in September of 2022, Iranian women took to the streets in large numbers to protest. Whether from an art background or not, the actions of these groups bordered on performance, such as unveiled women confronting state authorities. The courageous presence of women in public spaces has been a crucial aspect of this revolution, with many instances of women's political activism on the streets taking on characteristics of art production, becoming the hallmark of the Qazi revolution with the slogan, woman, life, freedom. The title of this presentation, which, substitu which substitu substitutes the word art for life, encapsulates both the essence of the revolution and the politically conscious approach to art that has existed in Iran for decades, predating the women life freedom movement. Many Iranian artists share the sentiments of acclaimed theater director, Peter Brook, and also Jerzy Gortowski, both of whom um, came to Iran during the 1960s and 70s to participate in the Shiraz Festival of the Arts. They both believe in a form of art that has to do with life. Peter Brook famously said, life is art and art is life. Similarly, post-revolutionary Iranian experimental theater groups like Av use their performances as a therapeutic tool that provides both actors and audiences with a sense of bodily relief. That is indeed a close relationship between art and life. For over three decades, Iranian women artists and by extension, women artists as activists have engaged in public art activism, creating moments of rapture in everyday life without declaring an overt political stance. These artists have used guerrilla style tactics such as painting graffiti, playful wandering, and occupying empty urban spaces to assert their right to the city and to challenge strict urban regulations. Such innovative practices in busy urban areas are more challenging for women artists or activists as artists by extension than their male counterparts. These artists challenge conventions that are tangled with four decades of subordination and exclusion of women without necessarily relying on local or international infrastructure of museums and galleries. Their performances bear resemblances to acts of protest, which similarly arise in response to institutionalized oppression and constitute a civil action both in their inception and implementation. After the Iran-Iraq war, conversations surrounding women's issues emerged, albeit within the framework of Islam, spearheaded by a group of women with links to the political elite. Simultaneously, forms of art began to surface that tactfully blamed customary practices and character types of Iranian societies, instead of openly denouncing the entire system. For instance, in the film Two Women, director, Tamine Milani featured cultural traditions that imposed limitations on women within the family and society more generally. In the other direction, performance artists leveraged cultural traditions and iconographies as resources for women to assert their place in Iranian society. 
In 2003, artist Genus Tafizadeh installed oblation, Nazr, in Farsi, in front of the Sheikh Lutfullah Mosque in Isfahan without permission from the government. The installation featured a 10-meter tarpaulin sheet covered in pairs, which resembled the curves of a female body and passersby were invited to take them for free like a religious offering. The installation was intended to highlight the absence of women's voices in public spaces, particularly at religious sites. Despite being questioned by authorities, Tarizadeh did not explain her intentions, stating that, quote, one should never speak of the reasons for which the pledge or oblation or nazr is done, end quote. The work was both a religious act and an interventionist gesture that questioned the limits of public life for women. The installation had a short life, remaining faithful to time-based artists' ontology, whose only life is in the present and for impact on the ground. Around the time of Tarizadeh's exhibition, that is early 2000s, women artists began to take over leftover spaces in the city. This was in continuation of a movement which had started earlier in the 90s by a group of primarily male artists whose work later became known as Kolangi projects. At first glance, artists' occupation of dilapidated and empty homes spaces bear a resemblance to activities in other metropolitan areas. Recall how since the 1980s, creative agents have utilized the leftover spaces of deindustrialized America. In Tehran, however, the leftover urban spaces were not the result of infrastructure decline, withdrawal of industries or depopulation. On the contrary, they were byproducts of rapid development. Buildings under construction were captured the imagination of Nedara Zavipur on her return to Iran in 1999, after more than two decades of being away in Paris, during which she was trained as a conceptual artist and as a stage or space designer. Razavipur's conceptual education in France, written disciplines, allowed her to see her home city in a new light. In the early 2000s, Iran was at the peak of an economic boom that had been gradually gaining momentum since the end of the Iran-Iraq War in 1988. Old buildings were being torn down to make way for new developments. As mere onlookers, Tehrani citizens could only marvel as entire skylines arose from out of nowhere. Artists like Reza Vipur, however, saw something else. In 2003, Driving around the city with her architect and multimedia artist colleague, Shahab Fotuhi, Razavipur noticed the quote-unquote abstract splendor of the concrete towers under construction. These were, quote, cubicle gray structures dotted with rows of dark square-shaped frames marked by large-scale numbers written in bold red, indicating the floor level to which each row fitted, end quote, she recalled. One of those towers, a half-built high-rise off the busy Chamron Expressway, would be the site of a 2003 project by Reza Vipur and Fotuhi. After securing permission from multiple organizations, including the Ministry of Culture and Islamic Guidance, the Beautification Bureau, the Tehran Traffic Police, and the, com and the Complexes Management Chief of Staff, 
the artists filled the windows of the high-rise with 70 backlit portraits of unidentified Tehranis taken by photojournalist Abbas Kosari, which randomly lit up and faded away. Titled Census, the work was a play on the equivalence of the term counting heads or sashramari. This choice conceptually related to headshots and the bold numbers that flanked them. Above all, the project was created for its impact on the ground. In a brief documentary accompanying the project, we hear the repetitive sounds of cement mixtures and concrete being poured, perhaps alluding to the unending expansion of Tehran. At times, the repetitions are interrupted by a jackhammer that sounds like a firing squad. Most importantly, the video also features passers-by commenting on what they see from below. Raza Bipur still receives comments and accolades from a younger generation of artists who remember how this project fired their imagination when they saw it as a child. Two years later, in 2005, the end of Khatami era, Raza Bipur and Fotui propose orange on gray, homage to Mark Rothko, Narenji Ruyakakistari. The orange referred to the fluorescent uniforms of hundreds of sanitary workers, the gray to the slabs of concrete on which the artists wanted them to stand in rows for a few hours. This site was again a building under construction, the Tehran International Tower, the tallest of its kind and the only one to meet the definition of a skyscraper at the time. The nod to Rothko was a way for Raza Bipur to express universal human emotions. She sincerely hoped to generate an art of awe-inspiring intensity. But there was more to this project than just a formalistic approach to colors and forms. Just as Rothko's canvases inspired the reverence traditionally associated with monumental religious paintings, Razabipur sought a celebration of pure color on a large scale that would lead her to engage Tehran's architecture in a violent clash of oppositions, vertical versus horizontal, hot color versus cold color, summoning the, exist the existential clash between the neoliberal revamping of Tehran and its religious and conservative attributes. The submission of the proposal coincided with Ahmadinejad's coming to power as mayor of Tehran. The proposal was rejected. During Muhammad Khatami's presidency, which lasted from 97 to 2005, and what is known as the reformist period, women had experienced greater social freedom. In 2007, the One Million Signature Campaign emerged as a prominent movement aimed at eliminating discriminatory gender laws in Iran, which it achieved in conspicuous manner. Nevertheless, female activists faced several obstacles as Khatami's term came to an end. Again, women artists were not submissive. Rather, they began to respond to these restrictions. In 2006, on the eve of Ahmadinejad's election as president of the Islamic Republic and the imposition of further restrictions on journalists, the abandoned headquarters of the most prominent state-run newspaper, Etelaat, became a platform for a monumental installation by Faride Shah Savarani. Shah Savarani's work was a commentary on government censorship of the news, which had reached its peak after eight years of relative freedom during the time of Khatami.
Visitors walked through the halls and interacted with newspapers. Some newspaper pages were trapped in barbed wire stands. Some simply covered the walls, windows, and ceilings, and others were shown in a series of original videos accompanying by the sound of typewriters and sirens. The exhibition also dedicated a small room to the memory of journalists who had been arrested and detained by the state. This room stood out as it was the only space illuminated by warm light. This Gesamtkunstwerk, or total work of art, engaged multiple human senses, affirming a form of viewing art that depends not only on our eyes, but also on our bodies. The Green Movement of 2009, the most significant popular uprising since the Islamic Revolution of 79, had a significant impact on the work of many visual artists, particularly women. Among them was Mehrane Atashi, who while participating in the protests, took a series of self-portraits, or what she calls khodnegare, using a lensless Holga 120 camera with a pinhole aperture. The resulting photographs had an unpredictable quality and a characteristically dreamy vintage appearance. The photos showcased her participation in the protests, but also her discomfort as a forcedly veiled female subject who is both the photographer and the photographed as she confronts the shock of being ex exposed in a chaotic space. Atashi's creative documentation of the demonstration did not go unnoticed. She was arrested and interrogated about her work and activism. Interrogators, did not, interrogations did not prevent this artist from excluding her public presence. Interrogators had asked her to focus on flowers. They literally told her, instead of taking pictures of sensitive topic, take pictures of flowers. So she um, started a new project, which was taking photographs of flowers that grow, um, wildflowers actually, that grow on the side of Tehran highways. This series, along with this handsome book, which showcases the role of flowers in softening dictators' portraits, came out of this whole saga. And the book is available if you're interested in knowing more about this project. It features uh, a wide array of flowers in um, politics, alongside images of dictators from Stalin to Mao and Khomeini and beyond. That tumultuous year, which is 2009, also prompted in the formation of a collaborative of six young women, which three years later became Tehran Carnaval. They were all born in the 1980s and their intention with this collective was to have pure joy or what they call sarkoshi. They did it all to feel better, literally they told me, we just wanted to feel better. For one of these projects titled Private Ocean, the collective could have chosen an entire building in mid-construction, but decided instead to use just the basement to display their large papier-mâché shark inside a plastic cube. For them, there was something liberating about creating a subterranean world, something detached from the rest of the society, 
the installation did not go underground to make a political statement about the lack of opportunities in ownership of public space, especially for women. Rather, it was simply motivated by a desire to feel better. Feeling better gradually transformed into a mission to produce counter-institutional projects. In 2014, when the group was invited to exhibit at a posh gallery in northern Tehran, they created an installation which was of a yellow cardboard pecan, the first Iran-made car produced by Iran Khodro between 1967 to 2005. They created this installation on the sidewalk outside the gallery rather than the gallery space itself. Another project, Binaculars, Durbin, was constructed out of two gigantic sewage pipes found in an abandoned site in Velenjak. The binaculars were held by two gigantic papier-mâché female hands with red nail polish. It felt like we were spying on the city, said one of the artists. Again, in the absence of an audience, the women simply got a kick out of looking into the city from a distance. Gender the spectatorship finds its most important early articulation in an article called Visual Pleasure and Narrative Cinema, which was published in 1975 by filmmaker and theorist Laura Mulvey. Mulvey showed how classical Hollywood cinema situates male viewers in an active position of dominant looking, reducing women to passive objects of that gaze. To explain this asymmetrical dynamic, Mulvey used psychoanalytic terms such as scopophilia, pleasure in looking, exhibitionism, pleasure in being looked at, and voyeurism, pleasure in looking at what is not supposed to be seen often without being seen. One can perhaps apply these forms of looking to the gendered spectatorship at work in public spaces of cities in Iran where the political system grants men a spectator position of power and keeps women in invisibility, presumably to undo women's perceived exhibitionism. The binacular project tries to undo all of these rules and regulations. Instead of falling into the binary oppositions of provocative and decorative, artistically sophisticated or plop, political or non-political, Tehran Carnival opened up possibilities for a place between those extremes without their non-serious, with their non-serious, nonchalant, and gently humorous projects that expose the slippages between critical remarks and inert indecisiveness. Yet even the subtle, seemingly joyful intervention could be constructed as a vandalism if set in the wrong context. The urban greenhouse, consisting of dozens of large-scale red roses made from rice bags, was installed on a green island between the Hemmat and Sheikh Fazlullah Nuri thoroughfares, on land purportedly owned by the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps. The authorities promptly disposed of the massive flowers either because they deemed them exhibitionist or saw them as an attempt to manipulate Daskari, an official urban space, or possibly simply because they disapproved of their lightheartedness. A display of childlike innocence, as opposed to poignant humor, has proved a more successful strategy for art interventions in urban spots claimed by the state. 
and indeed for any non-conformist art. Recall how in the 1980s, many Iranian filmmakers focused on the perspective of children as a safe and concealed way of expressing sensitive sociopolitical commentary. The juvenile characters acted in lieu of adult protagonists who could not freely express their political stances either in real life or in the fictive world of cinema. In 2014, the vast area beneath the monumental Azadi Tower was a setting for Made in China by Tehran-based participatory and social practice artist Negar Farajiani. Passersby were invented to interact with the giant custom-made Chinese beach ball tethered to the foot of the tower. Regarding this project, Farajiani said, for 10 days in a row, I observed people walking by the beach ball. Some paid attention, but only as the backdrop for a selfie. Others ignored it. I noticed only small children and street vendors were comfortable with the ball. I had taken the ball to other cities around the world and nowhere did I witness the uneasiness that I saw in Tehran. There is an ambiguity in all of these projects that has helped her their longevity. Take this group of women artists in bright red garments and shoes who stood still and remained silent for an hour between 5 to 6 p.m. in Tehran's Ferdosi Square for a couple of months in a row. This performance was a tribute to a certain lady in red who allegedly awaited her lover at the square, the same Ferdosi Square in the 1970s. Despite facing harassment and questioning from state authorities and some bypassers, the women continued their daily demonstration, a public display of love, which was a bold act that had never been seen since the Islamic Revolution of 79. Interventions in public urban spaces have also come to animate the work of theater director Mina Bozorgmer one of the founders of the Noir Experimental Theater Group. She founded the group with her husband, Hadi Kamali Mogadam, who's also a theater director. The group is known for its site-oriented urban performances. Bozorgmer comes from a background in architectural design and, and scenography, and believes that it is through experience and movement that architecture becomes meaningful. For her, space is also intertwined with narratives. She uses the, the term or the narratives of the spirit of a place. In explaining this, she particularly points to the same intertwining of space and narrative in theater, which she describes in spatial as spatial poetry, influenced by the work of Situationist International and stalker, the latter is a collective of architects and researchers in Rome, Bozorgmer engages in participatory actions to create situations and to construct a collective imaginary. Now, for those of you who are not familiar with the situation is international, it's a French group that was formed after World War II, and uh, they had some uh, leftist orientations. They wanted to invite people to use alternative maps of Paris to see non-tourist sites. And this is what you see in this naked city map that I'm showing you in this slide. So like the Situationist International, 
Beaux-Arts Mer and the Noir Collective as a whole has, um, has an interest in ignored places such as parking lots uh, that are behind theater complexes and so on and so forth. Appropriating situationist methods of collective walking, mapping and listening in the quote unquote indeterminate or quote unquote void spaces of the city, Bozortner also brings to light politically charged urban spots. In addition to providing freedom for artists to create risky interventionist art in public, movement in urban spaces allows a plurality of viewpoints. Those who are familiar with Abbas Kiarostami's 10 and Jafar Panahi's taxi know that the taxi in Tehran is not just a vehicle for moving from one location to the next. Sometimes the taxi cab can be a place in which passengers can listen to band music. However, most of the time, the taxi provides a safe haven to discuss all kinds of disappointments, cynicism, or conspiracy theories. At times, discussions get so intense that the driver is keen to drive for longer without increasing the fee. And just this tan and taxi were filmed entirely in taxi cabs, so the taxi became a venue for a series of performances by the theater director, Azadeh Ganje. Ganje gives Tehran a sense of a living stage with ongoing dramas on every unseen corner. This is rooted in her firm belief that theater is a vehicle for promoting democracy. Following the privatization of theater in the early 2010s, Ganges plays were often supported by the NGO-oriented Urban Art House in Tehran, and so required securing permission from the Ministry of Culture and Islamic Guidance Committee of Theater Supervision. By carefully balancing a diplomatic approach to the authorities with a virtuoso artistic choice, the construction of a spontaneous audience, that is, Ganje was able to realize unpermitted whispers. A play set outside a taxi cab in 2012. The 35-minute performance was staged four times a night using ordinary Tehran taxis, which navigate the capital along fixed and often straight line routes. A taxi would pull up in front of a cafe to pick up three passengers awaiting to see the play. Before the taxi pulled away, a young woman would throw herself into the front of the seat, into the front seat, alongside the driver, and the play would begin. For each performance, three actors were picked up and dropped off in sequence. The characters in the performance were three women in Shakespeare's plays, such as Ophelia. The choice of Shakespearean characters might sound a bit out of place for Tehran, but the intention was not to recreate them as they exist in the play, but rather to capture the mood and emotions of the characters. For example, Ophelia's intense love, madness, and despair were personified in the character of a woman from Tehran looking for a couple of individuals lost during the 2009 Green Movement. To add to the drama, the taxi driver made abrupt turns that unsettled the passengers. In one especially sharp turn, the female actor jumped out of the car, shocking the passengers or audience of the play. In Practices of Everyday Life, Michel de Certeau writes of tactics or hit-and-run acts of random engagement that ordinary citizens use to appropriate the dominant systems of power. 
The Certeau's tactics are subtle forms of negotiations of space and infrastructure. Specifically, they apply to the ways in which ordinary people, quote unquote, walk in the city, while also managing to avoid defenses, bridges, passageways, passageways and regulated crossings that rational planning imposed that rational planning imposes on the modern city. Routes for cars and buses are typically more planned and governed than those for pedestrians. But through Ganges' work, we see that car drivers too can choose their own routes and itineraries through unexpected U-turns, lane swapping, braking speed limit, and driving over curbs. In such ways, the actor slash driver of Ganges' plays resists the hegemony of planned and policed routes. Whereas the taxi provided a safe stage for Ganges Shakespearean plays, the bus became an alternative art menu for curator Ilham Puriyameh. Taxis are mixed gender, but Iran's buses are gender segregated. Men sit in the front and women occupy the rear section with the metal bars separating the two. A city bus then was an apt venue for an exhibition focusing on the boundaries that separate men and women public and private, oppressive and democratic atmospheres, and so on. The exhibition, called My Own Privacy Policy, lasted for three hour slot on a single day. A decade earlier, sculptor and performance artist Bitafa Yazi had exhibited her sculptures in a mobile van would stop every 45 minutes in an attempt to recite the elite circles who frequent art exhibitions. While Puriyamer's project struck a similar chord, it had a larger aim than bringing art to disadvantaged, disadvantaged citizens. Puriyamer aimed to confront private sentiments in public places, saying, the question I wanted to ask with this project was, what is the privacy policy exactly? Too often, Iranians' privacy is violated by powerful agents such as the morality police, or even by ordinary people such as older women giving advice to younger women on their veil and so on and so forth. Puriyamer's thoughts on public and private life were informed by her favorite author, Hannah Arendt, in her book, The Human Condition, which is also available in Farsi as Vaz Bashar. Of particular interest in Arendt's account of the close correlation between public and private space for an engaged and productive is of public and private space for an engaged and productive life. Under ordinary circumstances, having one's privacy invaded on public buses may not be a pleasant experience. In Puriyamer's works, however, the invasion of privacy is meant as a tool to generate public debates about limitations of privacy, but also freedom of expression, freedom to interact with art, and freedom to break the existing rigid boundaries between curators, artists, and audiences. Such clever tactics emerging the public and the private, the personal and the political, are also animated in the work of Katayun Karami. On August 5, 2013, when President Mahmoud Ahmadinejad was sworn in for a second term, the police attacked crowds who had gathered outside parliament to protest, arresting many. Against such chaos, Ahmadinejad 
called for national unity and coded from Article 121 of the Iranian Constitution, vowing to dedicate himself to, quote, serving the people and spreading justice and refraining from any dictatorship, end quote. Artist Katayuna Karami, who took part in the protest, was angered by these deceitful proclamations. Four years later, for the next election day, she created at Tehran's Azad Art Gallery a project that trapped visitors as they explored the gallery. Karami had laser cut the words of Article 121 from mats coated with adhesive from rat traps. The mats covered the floor so visitors could not escape the sticky mess. This was a metaphor for, as she told me, always being caught in the political predicaments. At first, the words were hardly visible to the visitors and also to the Ministry of Culture and Islamic Guidance staff who issued permission. However, after many visits, the sticky pads became darker and more decipherable. Four decades Four, four years later, I apologize, four years later, Nastarana Safwai created a video titled High Heels, in which she walked the entire length of Valiasr in high heels, capturing verbal harassments by all kinds of agents on a hidden GoPro camera. Certain state authorities who appeared to be operating covertly interrogated the prominent gallery in Tehran that displayed the courageous video footage at a later time. However, the female gallerist skillfully avoided the cancellation of the exhibition by justifying it as a means to create a safer public space for women in line with Islamic values. While the records of some of these ephemeral artistic performances in the city find their way into the infrastructures of private galleries, many do not generate any profit for Iran's alternative artists. The critical engagement with the space can offer them a sense of satisfaction and autonomy, and above all, a greater hope for a more democratic Iran, and that's why they make these arts. In the productive framework theorized by the Marxist philosopher Ernest Bloch, this hope gives Iran's artistic labor an agency, making its mark on society in the long run. Artists who repeatedly dedicate their time and energy to the unpaid and un undercompensated labor of ephemeral art making are exercising their right to claim a better society for themselves and others. For female graffiti artists, known only by her tag Ada, creating public artworks while disguised in, a men's, in, in men's clothes, she actually goes out in a hoodie not only gives her joy and freedom to explore urban space, but also brings together micro communities with a shared interest in transforming dilapidated spaces or disrupting the walls um, and limits of the city. When approached by a top-notch Tehran gallery that wanted to display her graffiti art, which was applied to portable and therefore sellable rocks, she refused. Similar to Ada, in the Women Life Freedom Revolution, women who performed protests were largely anonymous. In early October, in response to an attack on demonstrators in Tehran's Sharif University, two allegedly anonymous women artists adorned trees in Danish Jew Park with red nooses. 
while police quickly removed such installations, their pictures continued to emerge online. Art students also abandoned their classes. At Tehran University's College of Fine Arts, female students gathered with a slogan-strewn papers over their faces. They sat behind an unveiled student whose long hair hit her face and whose wrists were bound to an art tube in a pose like that of a fallen Baluch activist, Khodanur Lejei, who had been detained like this in a scorching heat without water. Anonymity, though, is not just for protection, which does not guarantee anyway. The comedian Zainab Musabi, who was behind a popular Instagram account of the disguised Empress Kusku, for example, was identified by Iran cybersecurity police, arrested, and even some years, and even given two years in prison for satirizing the Islamic Republic. Many creative agents remove themselves from the story to amplify the political message in their work, with no biography or known author to set limits on viewers' imagination. The poignant activist art of this quasi-revolution, made by anonymous and non-star artists, seem to have been effective than those that appear by distinguished artists. Most of these works do not operate via the propagandistic visual language of the Islamic Republic, the one that Walter Benjamin famously named aestheticization of politics pertaining to the age of the masses. On the contrary, art has entered the realm of the political in informal, tangible, and profound ways. Art has become part of everyday life without powerful agents, big names, auctions, galleries, or museums. Conversely, many instances of political activism have adopted regimes of art production. The month after security forces opened fire on commuters at a Tehran metro station, activists responded by plastering surveillance cameras with sanitary pads to, to stop authorities from enforcing dress codes on women. A slew of images uh, emerged on social media showing layered pads stuck to CCTV cameras in metro train cars. At first glance, the covered surveillance cameras look like decorative flowers. Then it became clear that this was an extreme act of bravery. Although the, the sticky pads helped expedite installation, those who mounted them could have been arrested or even killed. In November, an anonymous woman in Tehran posed on a pedestrian bridge in an outfit from the 2017 TV series, The Handmaid's Tale, an adaptation of the 1985 bestseller by Margaret Atwood. Last fall, many commentators compared Iran to the Republic of Gilead, the oppressive society of the dystopian tale that treats women as a state property. As in the film, where the bonnets obscured the handmaid's faces to prevent them from forming personal connections, the handmaid of Tehran obscures her identity with a bonnet. Five years earlier, a woman stood on a utility box above a busy sidewalk in Engalov, Revolution Street, weaving her scarf like a flag tied to a stick. She made sure she was seen, a decision that led, her, <clears throat> that led to her immediate arrest and prison sentence. Her assertive pose on that utility box became a hallmark of an anti-hijab movement and resistance of women. Its image repeated over and over again by illustrators. Her bravery came to full fruition in 2022. 
Tehran's anonymous handmaid might have dodged the fate of the utility box girl who later gained the moniker, the girl of the revolution, but she kept her message alive. This ongoing process characterized as revolutionary course uh, rather than a revolutionary situation by Asif Bayat could eventually lead to significant political reform and a new era of openness and possibility. Despite all its impact on the ground, activism gains greater credibility once featured on social media. In commemoration of the 2015 terrorist attack on their Paris offices, Charlie Hebdo published cartoons of Iran's leaders on January 4th, 2023. Following the publication, the Iranian regime issued a a warning about indecent and insulting nature of these cartoons. On January 8th, a prominent commercial billboard above Tehran's uh, bustling Hamad Expressway exhibited Charlie Hebdo-inspired parody. The image depicted Khamenei wearing a turban fashioned from nooses accompanied by the caption, water the tree of the revolution with my own blood. The installation process was captured on a video and shared widely on social media, featuring a masked young woman perched atop the uneasy metal pole from which the banner was suspended. The footage showed her um, uh, striking a pose with the arms raised and flashing the V sign for victory. Just as Charlie Hebdo cartoons incited activist responses on a Tehran highway, artists have consistently expressed their defiance through um, corporal performances or by portraying images of resistance and civil disobedience through stylized forms and other artistic expressions. And this is a two-way street, I think. You know, In 2012, we had a beautiful exhibition by a Pakistani artist who was on a residency in Tehran uh, who brushed her hair in front of the public. And we saw again that image by an Iranian protest um, uh, figure uh, repeated on the streets of Tehran during the 2022 protests. This highlights the reciprocal relationship between art and activism as they mutually complement and enhance one another, contributing not only to the social and political fabric of Iranian society, but also to expanding the, existen the existential horizons of gendered identity across different cultures. The transformative impact of this feminist movement, which is largely manifested through artistic and performative acts, has not only reshaped the status of women in Iranian society, but also redefined the essence of masculinity. Numerous male activists and artists have demonstrated solidarity with Iranian women by wearing veil in public. Despite the Iranian regime's attempt, attempts to suppress the protests and the temporary wall in protesters' activity, the movement is far from over. As demonstrated in this essay, over the past 30 years, women's performances in Iran have exhibited a steady increase in intensity of their resistance to the system. These demonstrations mark a notable shift in attitudes reflecting a mounting demand for women's liberation. Thank you so much.
Thank you so much, Professor Kennedy. That was wonderful. I want to pass along that we have several comments um, asking if this event is being recorded, which it is, and thanking you for a wonderful presentation. Um, and, uh, a lot of viewers really enjoying this talk. So we have about 12 minutes left. I'm going to try to get to as many questions as possible. Um, to start with, one viewer writes, thank you so much for this wonderful talk. I'm curious to know more about two subjects. The first one is the methodology embedded in and the data collection process for this vibrant research project. And the second one is whether all these artistic activities showcased here converged and can be gathered under one unique objectional standpoint rather than some existing nuances or even inherent different approaches or multiple political orientations um, you know, against the Islamic Republic. So I don't know if you want to take those separately. We can start with the first one if you want to say a few words about the methodology and data collection. Um, and as a side note to that, another viewer asked if the images that you showed today are available in your most recent book. Yes, absolutely. Well, thank you so much uh, for that question. Um, uh, yes, most of the artists that I presented in this work um, uh, are also included in my recent uh, book, Alternative Iran, Contemporary Art and Critical Spatial Practice. I believe with the exception of um, Merane Atashi's work and a couple of others. Merane Atashi has been featured in uh, Pedram de Bazar's uh, uh, book, which was published in 2020, I believe. And it's on urban visual culture. Um, the methodology for the book and for this presentation uh, was based on um, interviews with artists, but also um, uh, reading um, exhibition catalogs uh, related to these works if they were exhibited or collected by gallerists in Tehran. Uh, also, any um, any uh, uh, any reports on them in Iranian newspapers in the Iranian press uh, were also uh, considered. Um, I am mostly uh, indebted uh, to the artists who agreed to speak to me about these projects, which I included in the book. Um, and they were extremely generous, both with their time and also um, in terms of revealing the details of their projects, which are often not explicitly addressed in Iranian um, publications because of the limitations that you all know about. Um, in terms of uh, the, the ways in which they connect, um, they actually um, uh, are very different. They have different goals and different intentions. Some of them do have permission from the Ministry of Culture and Islamic Guidance, and some of them do not have permission. Um, and the artists, in order to make these projects possible, uh, they have had to um, uh, deal uh, very creatively with the staff uh, of the ministry. Um, in the book itself, um, the works um, um, actually cohere better uh, because they are presented alongside uh, works of similar nature done by male artists. But in this presentation, I wanted to highlight only the work of women artists whose work is justifiably um, harder uh, when it's implemented in public spaces because of the limitations on women. So um, uh, that's why you know, I focused um, on women only in this presentation. I hope I, I answered your, your question. 
Thank you so much. Another viewer writes, do people in general see these creations as forms of viable dissent, oblivious to it, or rather as revolutionary with potent long-term transgressive power? Could this artistic radicalism, as you alluded, towards the end lead to real breakthrough resonating with many segments of the society? Well, um, this is a very good question. You know, a lot of people, um, actually, I have to say that not all of these projects are seen in a rosy light in Iran. There are some critics in Iran who believe that these projects are elitists, um, that they only um, that they only address a very limited uh, uh, group of the society in Iran. But it's important to see them um, as, as, as a body of work um, since the Islamic Revolution. Uh, because when, you, when we see them as one body of work, as a single body of work, we see the continuity of these gestures, these performative acts, and that's what makes them very, very strong. Imagine if for abstract expressionism or cubism, we only had one example it would have never been a movement, right? But when we see uh, a series of works by different cubist artists or different abstract expressionist artists, we call it a movement. I believe this is an artistic movement. Um, um, some of them are more powerful than others. For example, theater by nature has more audiences than performance art, but still I think because of their continuity, uh, from one generation to the next, uh, they are very powerful and they do have a strong impact on the ground, even though a lot of them do not find their way in the international circuits of museums and art auctions. Thank you. Uh, a few questions maybe about the uniqueness of these art movements. Can you say a little bit about street art in Tehran versus in other cities and perhaps in maybe more rural areas? Thank you very much for that question. Um, in, in my book, um, I was able to focus only on the work of Tehran-based artists, even when they went out of the capital, including Elham Puryameh, whose beautiful work was featured here. Actually, that work was in the city of Sanandaj in the Kurdistan province. And I tried to cut out that part in order to keep my presentation within my time limit. Um, they do interact with people in other cities and they do acknowledge them. They do acknowledge um, communities in the peripheries of the Iranian society. Um, but again, these are all um, uh, Tehran-based artists, in order to uh, make a bigger claim about Iranian artists all over Iran, of course, more research. And uh, my book is already 450 page uh, long, so there was no room to accommodate those other artists. But I strongly believe that artists in other parts of Iran um, do also need acknowledgement and we should we should write about them. Thank you. And maybe zooming out a little bit, have you looked at street art in other Middle Eastern countries? You know, is there something that is very unique about this Iranian art movement? And one viewer asked, do these actions influence women rights as other in other countries as well? But first of all, the form of art that I present in this book um, is a time-based art. It's performance art, which was 
created um, in, in Western countries, mostly in European countries and in the US during um, uh, sensitive political times, for example, during the Vietnam War or the civil rights movement or the feminist movement, these forms of art were very impactful in the US and in other parts of the Western world. Um, gradually, they found their way into the conceptual lexicon of art making in, non, in other parts of the world. Uh, but this is not to say that this form of art is derivative. I actually, I have made a case for this art in Iran in my book, uh, linking it to, um, to um, religious and ritual practices such as Tazie, um, passion plays and other temporary forms of art making that have always existed um, in Iran. Um, in the Arab world, uh, obviously over there also, there are so many of uh, these forms of arts, uh, depending on which country um, we focus on. Uh, the presence of male artists is bolder than female artists. For example, in places like Syria or Egypt, we see more, more and more male uh, graffiti artists, but also male performance artists who do these kinds of interjections in the city. However, in places like uh, Lebanon uh, with more um, uh, you know, freedom for women, we also see examples of women's projects in those places as well. It's very interesting, thank you. We have just a few minutes left, so I'm gonna ask two questions and you can get to them in whichever order you would prefer. Um, how can those inside or outside Iran support alternative art movements like the ones that you've been discussing? And if you would like to mention, you know, what are you working on now? What is your next art project? Has the Woman Life Freedom Movement inspired future projects, exhibits, um, articles, books, anything like that you would like to talk about? Uh, thank you very much. In terms of support, uh, uh, unfortunately, because of the sanction, it has become harder and harder to um, to um, to send financial support to Iran. Otherwise, I think that we should all contribute in any way we can to support artists, independent collectives, um, festivals that have been formed outside the governmental run festivals, such as the Fajr uh, Festival, which is, um, which is a governmental run um, organization. Um, unfortunately, it's been hard. I think that, um, however, um, support can be done also by other means. Um, we should write about their works, we should feature their works um, as much as we can. You know, often for Iranian diaspora communities, Iranian art means art that is produced by Iranian diasporic artists, which is very, very valuable in and of itself. However, it doesn't really capture the difficulties that Iranian artists inside Iran have to deal with in order to produce art. It doesn't capture the kind of art that I um, write about in my book, Alternative Iran, and also the kind of art that I presented in this presentation, which is very temporary, which is very time-based. Um, so I think that we need to focus more on these uh, forms of art production. My next projects, um, I am thinking of collecting all of my thoughts in a in a perhaps a, a small book on on um, the relationship between art and activism in Iran, uh, and I'm also 
uh, writing um, a book about um, environmental design in Iran, which is again, you know, environmental issues in Iran um, is another topic which is very dear to my heart. And I'm investigating the history of the interconnection of architecture and design and environmental issues in Iran going as far back as the 1960s. That sounds wonderful. Thank you so much for a fascinating lecture and for sharing your work and the images with us. This lecture has been recorded and we will publish it as soon as possible. Thank you so much, Professor Karimi. We look forward to your future work and hopefully seeing you again. Thank you so much to everyone who attended this presentation. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Rama.